All right, friends, we are now entering the awkward moment where you don't know if it's quite live or not. Oh, it's uh, telling us. It's live. streaming live. Yeah, we're, we're here. Popped up, up on everybody. Oh. Yeah. All right. So here we are. We are going to uh, jump into a conversation today about race, justice, and other things people get mad about. Um, a candid conversation. And this is something that we wanted to do. We've been wanting to do it ever since um, the, you know, the reemergence in the media of uh, the, the conversation around the shooting around Ahmaud Arbery. But we know that this isn't a conversation that's just based on one event, uh, but it's based on a long history and a number of events. And that this is a conversation that we continually need to be having uh, as a church. And um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna tell some stories. We're gonna answer some questions. We've been taking questions through social media and then uh, I've actually just been calling people, asking them to give questions. Uh, you know, people who write uh, me emails or, or get mad about what I say sometimes. I ask them, I said, okay, I'm gonna give you a chance to give your candid question here. So. <laughs> That's what we're going to get into. Um, and so just to frame this conversation before we start doing introductions here is that this is uh, not, we do not want to have a conversation that makes everyone who champions for social justice just feel good about themselves, mm -hmm. while the people who have this subtle skepticism just feel disregarded. What I would actually love is a conversation that takes the rolled eyes of people who are kind of, might scoff at some of those sorts of things and help see brothers and sisters in Christ, get a vision of biblical justice, a vision of a God who intentionally made people from different ethnicities and backgrounds. And then also some of the folks uh, who really feel like um, they derive a sense of self-importance from, uh, the way in which they engage in this conversation to actually, if there might even be some things that really challenge them as well. Um, so that, that would be the goal of this conversation. Um, but before we do, I thought we would go around and we would uh, introduce ourselves, give our name, and then kind of speak to the ethnic and cultural background that you're coming out of, uh, maybe even socioeconomic background, just knowing that we have different backgrounds that are informing and shaping this conversation. So Emma, let's start with you. Okay. I'm Emma Tautolo and uh, I am I, I am biracial. So my dad is full-blooded Samoan and my mom was white. So, but I, um, I, like I have friends who've known me for five years and they don't know I'm white until they met my mom. Mm. And they were like, how, you're white because I just look so much like my dad um so no one um no one ever thinks that I'm white but I'm like I am I'm biracial and so I bring attention of being biracial into these conversations and I also I'm from Southern California grew up in a middle class family um but in a really really diverse community but I'm from the Inland Empire of Southern California and so I say, I like to say it's more of the affordable housing. If you want to live in Southern California, you move inland from the beach and you can find cheaper houses, which are still more expensive than houses here. But um, so just really diverse, um, played basketball. So 
um, like a lot of most of my best friends growing up just that were black because of the nature of being in the basketball community and just who I ended up playing with. And so, um, yeah, my high school was probably mostly um, black and brown. And so, um, yeah, it was just kind of my perspective and where I come out of, so. Yeah. Warren, Josh, when you guys want to jump in? Yeah, sure, I'll jump in. So uh, my name is Warren Williams. Um, uh, I am from the Bronx, New York. Um, this particular neighborhood I grew up in was predominantly Afro-Caribbean. Um, so my parents actually immigrated here in the 80s from a country in South America called uh, Guyana. Um, it's a small country, it's just north of Brazil. Um, it is the only English speaking country in South America. And um, it, is, it takes on, it's, it's kind of weird because it, it, it's geographically located in South America, but culturally it has more of like a Caribbean culture. So you can think about like uh, West Indian cultures like Trinidad and Tobago, um, Barbados, all those sort of countries. It, it comes out of that Caribbean sort of culture. Um, my neighborhood growing up was very working class. Um, you know, we had kind of um, that immigrant hardworking culture where it's like people were slowly um, climbing up the social ladder in certain what you can say. Um, but it was also very much a high crime area. Um, so we did experience heavy policing and um, yeah, just the effects of that. Um, yeah, yeah. And so my, yeah, my, 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 I went to college first, my first, I, I went to a couple of colleges. My first college was like a predominantly white institution. And that was weird for me because I honestly, growing up, I only grew up around black people. Like my neighborhood is probably 99% black, <laughs> I'm not even joking. Um, so that was like a real culture shock to me and moving out here, you know, was much of the same, but um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming, where I'm coming from. Cool. Josh, how about you, bro? Yeah, so I'm Josh and I am ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> I remember a buddy of mine is a professional photographer. People are always asking like, what, what are you? Where are you from? What's your background? And I had a friend who was a professional photographer once. He's like, dude, you should model. And I'm like, why, man? I'm ugly as sin. And he was like, yeah, but um, like the thing is like people like models. Who, <laughs> he was like, yeah, but uh, the thing right now, you know, people who lots of different people can identify. And he's like, I don't know what you are. <laughs> you know, like, like where, like if I'm from the Middle East or from Latin America, if I'm from all, pretty much anywhere but Asia, I feel like I got to identify with you. So anyways, yeah, I get asked all the time and now I can just let, yeah, let everyone know when, once we, so my mom, uh, my mother is Mexican and my father is Irish. And growing up, I grew up in Oregon in uh, Salem-Kaiser area, which was a predominantly white community in the, the area that we were in, um, middle class. Uh, and I, I think often in these conversations have found myself feeling kind of um, between two worlds in a certain respect, because on the one hand, uh, I feel like I've had a lot of uh, benefits, advantages growing up. I, I think lighter skin, lighter complexion, like I've never felt like outside of dominant culture in that sense, you know, just welcome in. And yet on the flip side, um, feeling really close to my grandparents and that side of the family. And they grew up in the barrio, Southern California. My mom has that part of history too. And so feeling connected to uh, the history and the family there. Um, so that's part of the backdrop I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm Jim. I have uh, various shades of whiteness in my background. Um, you know, I had a season where we lived in the suburbs, in the nice suburbs. I've had some seasons where we kind of lived in poor white neighborhoods. I've had seasons where I've lived in 
you know, very diverse neighborhoods and, uh, and spent much of my childhood in uh, homes with, uh, you know, living with African-American folks. And then, um, and then much to, and then a big portion of my family would be kind of like the rural uh, West Virginia types of folks and Midwest types of folks uh, who were kind of the biggest Trump, you know, supporters and, and those sorts of things. So all of these voices sort of uh, are echoing in my mind and all this. And what Warren didn't know earlier is that yeah. like, I'm, I'm kind of Caribbean. Uh, <laughs> you see, you laugh at me, but my mom was born in Antigua and I think she's like a citizen. And so technically I could get citizenship. I've never been there though. So it has no bearing on or influence on me, but. Yeah, I would have never made the connection. Yeah. Being Antigua. You and I were I was, Caribbean guys. I know, I will hold it down for the Caribbeans. <laughs> all right, let's, uh, I, I wanna jump into this question. We got all kinds of questions that people sent in, but um, before, before we do that, I thought it would be really important if Warren, you talked about um, the dream that you had yeah. last week. Because I feel like that's really important to help us feel the weight of this conversation. Yeah, man. So around 1 a.m. last night, um, you know, I was sleeping and um, I had this dream. Um, and so in the dream, you know, actually we were like preparing to have this exact conversation that we're having right now. Um, and so we were like on an elevated sort of like third floor of a building. I don't know why it was happening there, but for whatever reason it was happening there. And um, like I felt during that moment where we were trying to have the conversation that distractions just kept coming up, just kept coming up, just kept coming up to the point where I found myself like physically on the street with like um, other pastors, other people. And like, I was like, oh no, I really need to get back to the, this floor of this building so that we can have this conversation. Because like in my head, I'm like, man, we, we, we said we were going to do this Monday and like, we, we just, I have to, I have to be there. And so as I'm climbing up the steps to get back to um, the place where we were having it, like I hear these like angelic sort of voices singing and like as, as good as, as, as much time as I've been doing music, there is no way still that I would be able to sing in this fashion. And I was like, wow, this is like so beautiful. Um, I was actually thinking about like, oh, I want to put this on my next album randomly. But uh, in like the midst of, of hearing that at that moment, I felt myself being physically pulled off my bed. And like, I heard a voice that I can just identify easily that it was evil. And it was telling me like, I'm taking you with me. I'm taking you with me. And in that moment, the only words that I could muster up was like, Jesus, I know you're here, you are king. And that broke like the grip of what I was feeling in that very moment. And, you know, I woke up, I woke up my wife, Jordan, actually she was already awake and we prayed and um, like, I can, we both felt very, very, very much felt like the presence of the Holy Spirit during that prayer. And um, it, it just, the, the reflections that I had directly after was like, this battle is real. It's a spiritual battle and that the enemy is close and he does not want to see us have these sort of conversations. Um, he does not want to see us uh, uh, experience any sort of unity. He wants to continue to keep us divided by whatever, um, you know, wherever we throw our stake in the sand or whatever issue politically or culturally it may be. Um, so it definitely added a, a weight um, to this conversation. And it's definitely added like 
yeah, just a greater eyes to know that there is a spiritual battle going on. I know a lot of times we don't feel comfortable with that because it can feel weird, but reality is like there is a spiritual battle going on. And I really had like a very clear um, uh, feeling and presence of that last night. Mm -hmm. And I think that that highlights uh, the importance of having these conversations and knowing and pressing into Jesus and, and asking the spirit to guide them. Um, that sounds a lot like a, a number of experiences I've had in Turkey uh, of like sensing like demonic oppression um, and, and distraction and those sorts of things in sleep. And I, I, as I read church history in America, as I, as I hear people give input from other countries, other believers who are looking out at our country, uh, other commentators, so many people have said, if there is one area where there is deception, deeply embedded sin that people don't want to see is probably the issue of racism and some of the systemic injustices and those sorts of things. So I'm going to pray right now. Mm. Uh, Father, we, we proclaim that you are a good God who intentionally created people to reflect your image. And part of the way they reflect your image is through the various uh, ethnic and cultural backgrounds, the different aspects of who you are being put on display. And the enemy would want to stifle and smother those things. And so we just pray that right now that you would give wisdom to our words that you'd help the good questions to emerge, that what happens here would actually uh, be a small conversation in a broader work of discipleship that points people to you, Jesus, the one who through your blood purchased people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We pray that you would not be dishonored in this conversation and in the broader work that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So we've got the weight of that here. And we also know before we get into these questions that each of us actually has a narrative, a story, something that is shaping the perspective that we come through. We're being shaped by the biblical story, but we're also being shaped by our experiences and that shapes the way we see the world. And so I'm wondering if we could go through and if we could just quickly kind of tell a story or a moment that you think shapes the way you engage this conversation. Let's, um, Warren, why don't we go with you? Yeah. I actually told you this question was coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, so I think about, you know, um, there was one moment where I just felt like the, the sadness and brokenness around um, uh, just uh, systemic injustice and oppression. I think there's two, actually, I'll, there's two, but I'll go through it really quick because they're connected. So actually around the corner from where I lived um, growing up, there was actually a police involved shooting of an African-American um, uh, teenager. I think his, na his name was Ramarley Graham. Um, so that actually happened around the corner for me. And there was, I, you know, I saw the protests and just witnessed the hurt around that. And then there was actually just a, a closer and quieter moment that probably just occurred, uh, you know, plenty of times while I was growing up. There was a moment I was sitting outside my cousin's house. Um, I was probably in my car or something. And this block was known for um, like drug uh, activity. Um, and there was this one moment, there was this cop, you know, he pulled up and 
you know, the bigger picture of what was going on in New York City during that time, stop and frisk was still um, a thing and still happening. And I saw this kid who was just walking and the police stopped him and like he was put against the wall and he was like basically, you know, searched in that moment. And just to, I saw him like crying. I saw the tears like flowing down his face. And in that moment, like I felt so much sadness because I can tell that he was crying um, because oh, I'm getting, it's getting, it gets me choked up. I'll tell that he was crying because like he felt the way that he was being like dehumanized in that moment um, of just having like all of his body being touched. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that maybe those, maybe that tactic was able to possibly bring up, you know, crimes or something that, you know, they were able to get ahead of certain things, but to see it actually play out and to see actually someone like suffering under that tactic, um, it, it, it's an image that still stays with me to this very day. Mm. Mm. Um, I'll go ahead and I'll throw one out there. Um, this is a, this doesn't carry the same weight, but I think it really does illustrate. Um, I used to steal stuff as a kid all the time. Um, you know, I was a group of fr friends who used to steal things. And I thought that I was like really good at stealing things. I thought I was just like amazing. I was like a the world's greatest thief. And, um, you know, I had other friends, people of color who get caught all the time. And at some point we realized that I was not getting caught because I was a white dude. Uh, because people were not looking at me as I was walking through the stores. And honestly, we took advantage of that. We actually created a little strategy out of it uh, where we would have African-American dudes walking around the store with big jackets on, just slowly walking around, looking around. And then me and the other white dudes, we would just walk through the aisles, just stuffing everything in our backpacks. Nobody even given, paying any mind to what we were doing. We were like 11, 12-year-old kids and we figured out that there were some inequities in the world um, that we could take advantage of. And it, it's, it's interesting because it seems like at 11, 12, um, the only way that we could not see that there were some of those things is if we were really trying not to believe it. Yeah. Josh, Emma? Yeah. Go for it, Emma. I'll go uh, quick. My, um... I, I guess this is like maybe the first memory I have of something like this, but when I was, uh, I was six or seven and I was with, our whole family was at a party, like in a, just a more affluent area of Southern California. And it was so fun. I was in the pool all day. Um, but my mom used to remind me of this story because uh, that night I was playing on the playground and there was three girls who I, I wanted to play with. I mean, I was, you know, young. And um, there were three. There were three white girls, but um, they in the playground. I was on the swings, and they dumped a bucket of sand on my head, and they were like, "Get out of here, brown girl!" And I remember I ran to my mom, and I was crying, and I was like, "They called me brown girl," which in and of itself is not a like a mean per like word, but it just was the first time I remember feeling shame for being like not like them I just as a little kid um and I don't even remember what my mom did 
Uh, but I just, I was like, man, it was the first time I felt shame for being brown, um, for looking way different than those girls did. Cause I just, I really wanted to be their friend. Um, and then in, I think of 2016, I was working a camp for the organization I work for. And it was um, like an inner city sports camp. So there's about 75, um, all young black and brown men from inner cities. I don't know why I was there being a woman, but I was teaching two principals there. But it was the, the same week that um, Alton Sterling and Philando Kesta were shot back to back, shot and killed one day after another. And I just remember like we just that morning we heard the news and just a room of 75 young black men, black and brown men, all in high school, just on their knees weeping before the Lord. And mm -hmm. I just thought to myself, like, what hope do these what hope do these men, these young men have? Um, if this is what they see of how the country views their blackness um, or their you know, I just, it felt like such a hopeless moment, but then there was just crying out to God and worshiping God and lamenting. And, um, and there was like, there was some really beautiful, there, God brought something beautiful out of that. But I just remember thinking, Lord, like we, how, we, this has to stop. Like these yeah. young men have to have a hope, but our country it seems like gives them pictures of hopelessness a lot and so i don't know that was a shaping moment in 2016. um yeah yeah it's great i mean not great but yeah the uh i think for me the the first situation that uh story that comes to mind right now when it was actually is an international one but it was uh, i was in vietnam and i was there with kind of tagging along with a, a nonprofit organization and they were just launching a new initiative in a community there and so they had this gathering of Vietnamese pastors and leaders, and uh, the main person kind of stood up and he gave this presentation uh, for about 30 minutes on, hey, here's what we want to do in this community. We want to see if you want to be a part or not. And um, I could see in the eyes of the local leaders there that like the first five minutes are kind of like, okay, we're listening. About 10 minutes in, they were getting kind of antsy. About 20 minutes in, they seemed actually angry, you know? And by the time, and the person just seemed oblivious that was talking, but by the time they finished, um and they were kind of like hey do you want to join with us on this like this medical initiative and uh one of the lead key vietnamese pastors he stood up and he was just like um you guys always do this like you come here and you assume that we don't already have vision we don't already have gifting we don't already have like we've actually been here for ages and the better question if you had come first going man asking us uh what are you guys up to and do you would you want to be a part of it and it was kind of this mic drop moment where he starts going off talking about all the things that they're already doing leading. And what struck me was, um, dude, coming from the outside in, there had just been the assumption of uh, um, an assumption that didn't recognize or see like the local abilities and talents on the ground that were already there and the gifting and the leadership and the potential. And uh, and so what I found over the years after that, I, I oversaw kind of local and global partnerships for a while and I started seeing the same dynamic in our own city at home so I was back in Portland and just finding that often there were just phenomenal like African-American leaders Latino leaders uh, leaders from different communities across the city who were doing phenomenal work and often were not sought out their voices were not given input and often um, when I was you know in, in my context where we were in more predominantly white circles we tended to get a lot of the uh, applause to so say like school partnerships, big school camps, that kind of stuff, 
going in and suddenly like the mayor's talking about it and the city there's cameras and all but the reality is like black churches in our city in portland have been doing that for ages it's actually been you know spearheading work like that for a long time a lot of the kind of stuff that um well i guess in summary like just for me it was symbolic of just going like dude often finding that uh there had been an assumption in a lot of the dominant culture that i found myself swimming in that um i didn't recognize and see like the leadership and gifting and potential and vision uh in communities of color minority communities in our city and globally and just the heartbreak over how much we're missing out as the body of christ when it's not uh, when that's not centrally significant to who we are and what we're doing yeah yeah well thanks for sharing those stories folks um we're going to go ahead and just jump into the questions these are either questions that people sent in or that we sought out, uh, that I sought out uh, today. Um, so also folks who are on here live, feel free to throw some questions in the comments and maybe we can get to them. And here's the lens through which we're asking and answering these questions. As, as uh, people who are trying to lead, we've got four leaders of uh, Redemption Tempe right here. Um, so we can't, we're not sociologists, we're not, um, you know, whole number of things, but we are trying to kind of help answer these questions for the sake of, of, of leading our community and honoring Jesus and whole life discipleship, which includes uh, the big questions of justice and of who God made us to be in our various ethnic backgrounds. So the first question, uh, we had a couple questions like this, so we kind of consolidated it, is uh, doesn't the Bible emphasize personal responsibility and not systemic uh, injustice. And, you know, there would be other comments that would sort of say things like, isn't systemic justice like a Marxist concept, not a biblical uh, concept? Um, yeah, so, so is it a big thing in the biblical story? Um, Emma, why don't, you, why don't you start us out with that one? Uh, I guess the first thing I would start off with is I, I would talk about, um, well, systemic injustice, it, we see it in the biblical story. It's like, we see like we, I mean, if we go back to Exodus, we saw that Pharaoh implemented systems of injustice where he was like, every firstborn baby, we killing them. Right. So like, I'm like, I, I don't think we can, um, get away from systemic injustice being, uh, a part of just the of brokenness and sin um and we we see it we see it in the story of the bible so uh one of the things that's is uh systemic injustice some of the ways i would describe it is like um lingering effects of like a, a policy or a system or a belief uh that kind of oppress people or like so some some examples of it um like this is like a more simple example where you don't see it in this necessarily implemented like systematic thing that's created that's playing out but um like something like uh what is professional what's a professional look in the workplace so something that's been we've seen a lot more in the last few years is like uh certain workplaces saying like um you can't wear an afro here and i'm like 
because that's seen as unprofessional. So I'm like, like I would maybe that's I would say that's maybe more systemic racism. Like what we have defined as beautiful or professional is straight hair that looks very kept, whereas like an afro or dreadlocks to say that's not a professional look. So you can't rock that at this company. That's just like a right, these lingering effects of how what we define as beautiful or acceptable um, can affect like like ideas that people will actually put into a policy. So we have companies that that was a policy where um, now like people are overturning that stuff because it's it's like it's it's systemic racism. It shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't be able to say you have dreadlocks, you're unprofessional, you can't work here, right? Um, so that's just a small example, but of yeah. like these lingering effects of racism that are put into policies and systems that are affecting um, people of color and people who don't meet these like standard norms of what we've called the beautiful or professional. So um, I would start off with that. You guys can add more anyway. Yeah, um, I was just thinking too, like when we think of sin, a lot of times and through our history, we've only relegated to a personal, on a personal sort of level. So like, you know, I'm a sinner. God is, you know, Jesus has came or died for my sins, you know, I've been redeemed. But like the totality of sin, you know, when it, uh, you know, when it, it, it affected humanity, it affected systems and structures. And we see that, like Emma said, you know, we see that play out through Exodus. We see that play out um, all throughout scripture where people are dividing themselves. And um, ultimately, you know, in the New Testament, we see that God is trying to create like one family of people. Um, and, you know, there, there are things that uh, systems and structures and those things that, that are in place you know, come in front of that, that get, you know, uh, in the way of this one family being, being created because we're dividing ourselves based on race, ethnicity, social class, whatever it may be. So just the totality of sin, when we look at it, it, is, it has affected everything. And God's ultimate goal is to reclaim and to reconcile all things, including systems and structures that have been impacted by sin. So, so if I hear what you're saying, um, if someone says, that sin has only affected like the individual. Right. And they actually have a pretty truncated small view about right. how devastating sin is and how pervasive it spreads. It doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the collective systems that multiple individuals put together and all yeah. in physical creation. Yeah. And I think I think that's important to realize too, because I feel like, you know, a lot of my white brothers and sisters, when we talk about this issue, um, they feel like we're only saying the sin exists in them. And the reality is like the sin exists everywhere, it exists everywhere, it exists in all of us, right? So it's not like you guys are the only, you know, you're the only sinners, you're the only one sinning against people. No, 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 like the, the totality of all things have been affected by sin. Um, and I just, yeah, I think that's just an important point because um, yeah, they're, they're, it can come off, it can feel like, you know, we're, wanting to attack white people. And that's like, no, that's not the case. It's just that we're calling out this in because it is so pervasive, especially um, in American culture and Western culture. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah, I mean, I think systemic impacts of sin are just like a major emphasis in the biblical story. So if you think about just uh, the very beginning from Genesis, it starts in the garden, but it ends in the Tower of Babel. And Genesis 11 is kind of the climax of that first part of the scripture. And it's a tower. There's a uh, 
connotations, overtones there of empire and the bricks that are associated with like slavery later in the biblical story. And, and there's this picture of this thing that God judges and it's out of the aftermath, that sets the stage for God's calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. You go a little farther in the story and as has been mentioned, you get to the end of Genesis and you're into Exodus and Exodus is like, Pharaoh is Adam's great, 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 great grandchild, right? Like there's a sense of what began in Adam has now culminated in this empire, Egypt, that's depicted as like the culmination of sin's power in the earth on this massive level that God sets to redeem and liberate his people from. And when he does, Israel, God doesn't just liberate and redeem like a bunch of scattered individuals. He actually forms them as a unique, a countercultural quote-unquote system like a, a people that are called to be a kingdom of priests and so we think they're the significance of the law that god actually wants to structure or you might say systematize like the corporate life of his people in a way that is an alternative to uh, the world around that is falling into radical systemic sin god creates an alternative people in the midst of the kingdoms of the world to bear witness to a different systemic and social life together but they jack it up right so you keep going in the biblical story and over and over again uh they're confronted for, for systemic evil like the prophets are continually railing against it and that leads to the exile into babylon which is a systemic uh category like the, this empire and i do think there are significant individuals throughout this you've got folks like abraham and moses and david and it's worth recognizing that their personal significance is relation is in relationship to the systemic whole. So Abraham's significance is not just as a lone solitary dude; it's as the progenitor, the great, the patriarch of the people. God, uh, Moses is the liberator and the lawgiver to help create this structural systemic alternative. David is the king who rules and is is called to help systematize or structure the life of God's people as ruler to embody that. I think we get into the New Testament and it's not like that was just for the Old Testament. Then you get into the New and the church is called to be this colonies of the kingdom in the midst of the empire, like not just individuals again, but actually communities that embody in their corporate shared life. Uh, you might say a systemic alternative to some of the norms in the society that surrounds. And I think final thought here, but just church history as well, you see um, Augustine, the city of God, maybe one of the most famous influential works of Christian history, uh, theologically, and people often point to Augustine as being a hypothesis for the personal significance of sin, how deep sin goes. It's more than our behaviors, it's our root desires and all. But his most famous work, City of God, the key idea, the thesis was two loves built two cities, that actually what we love has implications for what we build, and that the corruption of sin works its way into the things that we build and the systems that we rule and the things that we make. So as I like to put it as, you know, corrupt, corrupted affections, corrupt institutions, and build corrupt system, right? Like, so the personal and the systemic, I think, are very intertwined in the biblical story that the corrupted affections or desires or things of our heart actually corrupt or influence negatively the different spheres that we have influence and leadership in and can build corrupt things that, yeah, legacies that we have from history of poor decisions that were made in the past affect and impact life today. So all that to say that it is a very biblical category um, and emphasis throughout the story. Yeah, and, and it's, it's totally illogical and unbiblical to make the assumption that you've got a bunch of individual sinners that when they come together and organize the world, dang, Josh just <laughs> bounced. <laughs> when individual sinners 
organize the world and create a system now now all of a sudden that system is just neutral there's no evil there's no sinful influence in that thing and i think part of what happens when you get into uh systemic injustice is when someone builds a system a pattern of ways things work and those original builders pass it on from generation to generation and then it sits in the hands of people who are saying well, I didn't build it. I'm not responsible for it. Um, and then what do you do then? Uh, I think major things uh, now would have to do with our criminal justice system um, and uh, incarceration rates and, and, and a, a number of other things. But uh, it stands to reason that there wouldn't be a bunch of sinners coming together and creating a system, of course there's gonna be some evil, unjust things baked into that system that God deeply cares about. Um, all right, so let's, let's get to another one of the questions that's related here, um, is do I need to repent of something that I didn't do? So we've got this history of racism, we've got slavery, we have a number of other things, but I think in the conversations I have with people, you have a number of people who are saying that I'm perplexed because I don't want that to happen. I didn't want racism to, uh, to exist. I didn't want slavery to exist. But do I need to repent of it? Like, that, what, what would you guys say to that? Josh, I, I want you sure. to take a stab at that. Yeah, totally. Sure. Uh, and, well, first, I think I'd note that it is biblical. So we see the prophets. I think Daniel 9 comes to mind as an example where Daniel, if anyone had lived upright and uh, righteously, courageously in the midst of the exile into Babylon, uh, he would be it would be him. And in Daniel 9, he prays this extensive prayer where he identifies with the sin of his people. I think that speaks to this this broader biblical theme of what we call corporate identity, that we all have both a kind of a personal identity and a corporate identity, that um, Daniel is both, even though personally uh, maybe innocent, it's more like he identifies with the corporate collective identity of his people and the sin of his people. And I think we see this, ultimately we see this in Christ, that Jesus is ultimately personally innocent, and yet he identifies with his body, with his people. Uh, and he bears sin on, on our behalf. And so one of the ways I like to maybe think about this analogy would be, I think about the, the 2008 housing crisis, right? Like how can someone be both personally innocent and yet corporately or collectively responsible? And uh, 2008 housing crisis, the banks were on the hook for millions, billions of dollars for the damage that was done to the economy. And let's say Bank of America was one of those. I think they owed like 17 billion, million, they, it's a long time now, but they owed tons of money. And what if Bank of America just said, well, that was under the old CEO. We got rid of him. We hired a new guy. We shouldn't be responsible anymore because that individual is no longer here, right? Like all of America, we would revolt and go like, no, like you have a corporate debt, you know, regardless of the individual, like there's a corporate identity of the, the company in a sense, and, and there's a debt that, that's, that exists there. And if we operated that way, like BP wouldn't clean up the oil spill, they'd just fire the CEO and hire a new one. Um, but no, there's a sense of a corporate identity, collective debt. And Jesus, though he's personally innocent, he bears the weight, the corporate identity of 
humanity, you might say humanity Inc, right? Humanity Incorporated that the human social body, Jesus identifies with the weight of his people. So I think it's helpful to say, even if someone were to go, dude, I, I personally didn't do that. Um, biblically, and for most people throughout history as well, would say, I am my people. Like we are bound up with our community for good or for ill. Our lives are interwoven with our community, with our history, with our people. And it's not so easy to disentangle ourselves from that social identity. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I just add on to that. Like, I think it's a, uh, we're only fooling ourselves to think like we just exist in a vacuum. Like we, we just arrived here and we're not the product of like the long histories of things that we may not even know that we're, we've been complicit in. So um, yeah, just kind of pushing back against the notion of like, I just arrived here and I am totally innocent of all sort of past sins is to me, it's just, it's just not reality. Um, I think of places too, like where this is actually communal repentance has been like modeled really well. And I think about like Germany, um, where the ways that they have like compensated, um, you know, uh, people who were affected by the Nazis, um, the ways that like, it's just embedded in their culture of like how ugly of a time this was like, and just their, their like fear sort of like removal of all sort of Nazi symbolism and the way that they talk about in their culture has actually helped to bring like healing. And I think in our country, you know, we still haven't had, uh, we still haven't approached the, the, this issue in a way that like can actually bring healing. Um, and what we're seeing as each thing happens, is just like more trauma added on top of it. Mm. they said it all that's good i was thinking of second chronicles where it's like if my people who are called by my name mm. will humble themselves and mm -hmm. pray like i'm like god's not addressing a bunch of individual people he's addressing a people of like mm. a body that is woven and connected together so i'm like man i just yeah i i'm with what you guys just said like i was like i just can we I think, can we see ourselves collectively? Cause I think the Bible addresses people individually too. I'm not saying that doesn't matter, but um, like as a community and ah, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I think what, when people are asking this question, what comes to mind sometimes is the broader narrative of collectivism versus individualism. Yeah. And there tends to be an assumption that collective identity that you would find in a lot of like Middle Eastern, East Asian countries where there's a much higher priority on us as a people and who we are in our history. Um, that would kind of be the collectivism and then more Western countries, it's more of the individualism of this is who I am and that's really where my identity is at. And I think biblically, when you look you would say both of those are wrong ways of viewing humanity uh, at the extreme, but actually both of them uh, are, are right in a sense that we are both individuals with individual responsibility who are part of collective communities that have collective responsibility. That's the way the Bible speaks about sin, the way it speaks about repentance. Um, but what draws us away from that is not necessarily the biblical narrative, but the broader narratives of either collectivist or individualist cultures. Um, but have you guys seen that done well? I'm going to be honest. I haven't seen a lot of examples of good collective or, or repenting as a people. 
Mm. Yeah. Just. I this, mean. I mean, you lead lenses, so you. Yeah. Repentance. No, so we like we do in this uh, something I hopefully call the Lenses Institute. Like, it's this five-day intensive, and the last day, we have a specific confession time carved out, like specifically made for that. And we do see a lot of repentance and corporate repentance happening. But I just think of even like um, like the best example I think of it. I do, I think of like Warren, you talked about Nazi Germany and I think about South Africa and I think of the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions where it was like, they get, they were giving individuals um, opportunities to like confess um, what they did and then they were pardoning them. But I think that, I don't know, like they're just in the things I keep reading about it is like that um, inviting you to confess and to repent and then pardoning it, it like invited a whole country to, to own something really ugly and evil. And it's still not perfect. I know that, but it's just one of the, when I think of the world, it's one of the most beautiful, complicated, hard examples I, I've read about. Um, mm. and there was leaders who really led out in that. And yeah. so, yeah yeah but so yeah what comes to mind for me is just the distinction of um so i, I had the chance to work in both uh, rwanda for a few months back in the day and then also in cambodia for a number of months and both were home to some of the worst uh, genocides in the second half later 20th century and one of these that struck me uh though now decades later but was the different processes they went through and in Rwanda, um, I mean, there are a lot of challenges. South Africa is often held up more as the model of, of things, but still in Rwanda, in a lot of the communities and areas where I was working with, there was a strong emphasis for reconciliation to take place where that was happening, that what happened needed to be named, like even publicly known. And it seems like something about naming, calling it out, not swooping it under the rug, but calling it out um, led to greater process of healing for those who were involved with that and communities that were able to come together when that the the atrocity that happened was publicly named and owned. Uh, contrast that with Cambodia, and for a lot of complex reasons, but with Cambodia, uh, that was not the route taken. It was very much um, uh, more of a let's forget it and move on. And I think you see a lot of the trauma and the the impact in society, the difficulty to move on um, historically when uh, there has not been a reckoning with the history, kind of a public truth-telling name. And so we're talking about a lot of the Cambodian leaders who would just say that's, that's an ongoing challenge to rebuilding and moving forward as a country is um, the lack of a process where things were reckoned with and named in a public manner uh, for all those involved. Mm, mm. Um, all right, so Landon Armstrong, he sent a, um, a question here. And I, I would say, um, I'm not gonna name who named the questions in the regular document I have here, but if you're throwing it on the, the Facebook. So um, he said, um, since we are all sinners, how do we make sure that our solutions to systemic injustice doesn't create a more systemic injustice? Is it even possible to do so? 
And if it's not possible, are we in danger of making the pursuit of eliminating systemic injustice an idol? Um, so I think the, the first question we'll kind of take a stab at of um, how do we know that our attempts at, make, at pursuing justice and, and fighting injustice aren't just going to create something that's more unjust? And, 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 you know, I think that there's something profound, actually, to what he's saying, um, because Miroslav Volf talks about how, how often the shield becomes the sword. Yeah. Uh, in other words, responding to some evil thing that's done uh, often results in a preemptive defense that can often be worse than the actual original. So you think of, like, Nazi Germany um, and that flowing as a response out of the shame of, of what happened in World War I uh, and some of those things, or like Israel and Palestine uh, today and, you know, those sorts of things. So, I mean, what would you guys say to that? Man, um, I would say, number one, like, there is, if we're looking for a reality of having, like, a perfect world here, that that won't be um, until, like, Jesus actually comes and all things are restored. So um, that's not, you know, in happening in our lifetime. Um, but one thing I can say is that that helps with creating any sort of systems and um, structures is like a plurality of voices. Um, I think, uh, you know, in a, a lot of these systems and things that we see that are so oppressive were um, designed by, you know, one voice. We're designed by one group of people of a certain race, class, and, um, you know, the input of other people was, were never taken into account and the, you know, the, the, we've suffered under the effects of that. So uh, like in all the systems and structures of things that we're trying to like, you know, correct and make better, um, you know, we should try to hear the voices of not just um, one group of people, but from people from around the spectrum of life. I, I thought I was gonna piggy, piggyback off Warren is like the people who know probably most like what their community needs like built into policies and systems are probably the people in the community. So I'm like, it like it almost seems like the voices that need to inform mostly what's being done and decided about them are the voices of the local people on the ground, like in the front lines. And I think so often that's not been the decision makers or the most powerful voices in decision making and policy building in in our world that's just not been true and i think of like just a little story like from uh, an la like city a compton city official in california she w told us this story of one time like the city of compton was they were like we're gonna make um this park into we're gonna build new basketball courts here in this certain neighborhood of compton and they were like uh, obviously they were thinking black people basketball duh but those basketball courts right they sat there and nobody used those basketball courts. But she was like, if what we would have been smart to do is if we would have talked to the community, we would have known that in that neighborhood, um, Serena and Venus Williams grew up down the street from that park. So what people, what we should have done was built tennis courts because that was where parents were, want, were wanting their kids to learn tennis. And, uh, and I was like, dude, that's crazy. Like just what I would have, I would have assumed, right? Many people would have assumed, but just by letting the people in the community lead out with their voices, you actually learn like, okay, let's make decisions that are different based off of, they know their needs more than we're gonna know them, you know, so. Yeah, and the, and the reality too is like, 
I think we, we kind of, we don't like that too, because that's a slow process, right? Like we like to get things done yesterday. So like to involve people and to hear voices and to hear thoughts and opinions, like it's going to take us like slowing down. But I believe that like slowing down on certain things is worth it. Like maybe we've been trying to be too fast and too quick. Um, and it's really been inefficient as like, you know, um, Emma's story just kind of exemplified. So um, yeah, I, I think, I think um, having a, a process that again, just involves the different perspectives, opinions and views, extremely important. I think it's to what might be behind some of the question, if not that question, other questions that people would be mm -hmm. asking is you do see, especially in like socialist regimes, um, that it can frame the world as oppressed and oppressor mm -hmm. and sometimes can incentivize uh, being identified as the oppressed. And then you'll get uh, an uprising that says the oppressed need to beat down the oppressors. And so you see, and even in a lot of things, I, I believe uh, this is how like Cambodia uh, played out in some ways. Is that right, Josh? You, you've got some history. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. And so what starts as a an attempt to fight like le legitimate injustice ends up building a new system of greater injustice. Um, I mean, you've seen Cambodia a bit and, and some of those other things. Would you speak to that, Josh? Yeah, totally. Well, part of the history there it was was called Ground Zero, so it was highly influenced by French thought and, and Marxism as well. And so it was uh, the Khmer Rouge or the Red Khmer was the Communist Party, but a lot of it was um, let's take down the current leadership. So they targeted specifically judges, doctors, lawyers, nurses, those with influence and prestige and uh, power and all. But really, in the process, demolished. Um, a lot of the leadership of society and the professional class of society. And it was kind of a back to uh, agriculture type movement. And so it was sort of an anti-urban, let's get back to the fields. Uh, and in the process killed an estimated 18 to 25% of the population. So just, just horrible, um, but also eradicated the infrastructure because it was set up as a, an us versus them. Those in power are the problem. We need to demolish and get rid of that. We're the oppressed. So we need to demolish and get rid of them. And in the process, um, just led to mass starvation, mass uh, the abolishment of any infrastructure, and some of the challenges in the aftermath. Why rebuilding is taking so long is because all of those kind of professional class vocations, leadership, and stuff was um, was demolished and and killed. People were killed because they were seen kind of labeled the tag of the oppressor, and it led to the backlash led to uh, just a horror, you know of the, the quote unquote solution was way worse than. Yeah. And, and so what's interesting is I think sometimes we have a conflation of ideas that there is kind of like the socialist um, uh, revolutionary mindset that uses a lot of the same language that emerges from the Bible, but always do, doesn't always have the same biblical vision of what justice is. Um, and so it's more of a revolutionary justice uh, versus a justice built on the self-giving uh, love of Christ that covers the, the, the broadest systems of creation. And so, I mean, I would say that this is actually creates an opportunity for us to step into these issues of injustice 
with a biblical vision that's shaped by Jesus, his ways, his teaching, the nature of the gospel, and kind of lead in that way. Um, because the alternative is to do nothing uh, out of the, the fear that something that you might do might be worse. But if you just took that into an individual level, it doesn't make sense. You're going to say, I'm just going to push against my own individual sin. But if I do that, I might do it in such a way that I create a worse problem. So therefore, I'm just going to ignore my sin. It doesn't make sense. And so the broader thing is that you, we must engage the issues of injustice as God's people. But we need to be shaped by the biblical story rather than uh, other stories that are out there. Um, I'm going to hit a few more questions. And I think we need to do part two because we are just barely scratching the surface of these <laughs> questions. All right, I wanna jump right into this one. So Tyler did a video recently um, that was um, naming um, the shooting that happened with Ahmaud Arbery. That, that was the, the springboard for the broader conversation, but just basically saying um, that we as a church, we need to repent we need to mourn. We need to identify the ways in which we have contributed um, to, the, to the broader injustices. And we need to really do some self-reflection. Now, he, he said a statement in there that we don't need to wait for the facts. Um, and, I, and I think what, what some people might have took, taken that as is we don't, need to, we don't need to care about the facts. But... What he's saying, we don't need to wait for the facts before engaging our hearts yeah. and lamenting and mourning and those sorts of things. What do you think he means by that? Emma, I know you were, when I texted you the video, if it's okay if I share, like, yeah. you were pretty moved by it. How would you answer that question? The way I would answer it is, um, so this just all, this, this has helped people think about this when I, but. So there's a, a family in our church, some good friends of all of ours, and they uh, they had a sister die in a car accident. Hmm. Um, you guys all know who I'm talking about. And so um, they're like grieving and mourning. It's heavy. It's like one of the worst days of their lives. And as it you know comes out more, um, people would ask them, and they've shared this with me. They were like, people would ask us like, oh, um, was your was your sister drunk driving and uh and it, it's just like the most insensitive question almost like for me I was like so you have to know that these facts before you can grieve with our people before you can enter into the sadness and the horrific pain with our family our church family you need to know like if this is the case or not you know I'm like and I'm and for uh, like I think if you hear that, you're like, no, that's ridiculous. Of course we wouldn't. But I think that's how black and brown people have felt all the while that these things happen. And people are like, there's other videos out. You need to know the facts. And I'm like, we don't actually need to know the facts before we choose to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and groan with all of creation for for God to intervene and to restore and make all things new. Like, I, I, I'm not... I'm not saying that you have to not care about the facts, but I, I was like, I just think that's a, that's against what to carry the body of Christ together. I was like, 
we like we need a supernatural like holy spirit given amount of empathy mm -hmm. to enter in i think like we see jesus in the gospels doing that um where people connect with their own humanity and like they're called into a more empathic response and i just i'm like man that's i was like that i i that is what we need you know that's um lord like that's the type of, I think, community that's so attractive to the suffering, to the pain, the people in pain is like this community that just gets on our knees and weeps with one another um, and, and can live in the tension of the complexity of what it is, right? Because I'm not saying you need to like denounce what you think is right and just, I'm not saying that, but can you get on your knees and enter into the complexity of uh, yeah, there might be different videos. There, may, there are different opinions that float around everywhere. But like, step into this tension. You know, like the tension of life and death, and weep together, and and don't always have to be right or heard first. But can you just can you mourn with the art? like? Yeah, people are hurting, and so mm. I think that's how I would start answering it. Like, oh my gosh, like. This is a discipline for us to like enter into the tension and complexity and 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 lament and just like honestly to groan and long long for Jesus's return and mourn injustice and I don't know so yeah yeah no I Emma like I, I feel you man like the thing that yeah a couple things one like if you're we're supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ right like if your brother or a sister in, in you know your normal family your family like came to you and was in tears or like really hurt about something is the first response you're gonna have to them well well let me know the facts first or are you gonna be like what happened like how can i help you how can i grieve alongside you and it's, you know even more so within the family of god this should be our posture um, i think one of the most hurtful things that happens when we see these sort of whether it's a mott arbery or michael brown or whatever you know these these cases happen is that there seems to be um a questioning of like was this life actually valuable like we have to learn the facts before we know if this life was valuable and that that hurts right because um you know we you know for for us who see our black and brown you know black and brown people just laying on the street we're we're sad and so like what we 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 don't want, you know, uh, uh, we, we don't want this, your line of questioning to figure out if this person deserved to die or not. It's like, be sad with us, grieve alongside us, weep alongside us. Like, um, you know, don't try to come in and like, maybe even try to like in some way add a fix to the situation so that I don't know, like, I don't know who that actually, that doesn't, there's no way um, like knowing the facts, how that's going to help the person who's grieving. That's going to help the person who's asking in some way resolve it in themselves. And, and that's a really like a, a selfish way to deal with it rather than like being loving to your brother or sister. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's helpful uh, to distinguish between like the legal judicial kind of side of things and the emotional lament side of things, you know, cause I didn't hear Tyler saying at all, like, hey, uh, the courts should, you know, like come to arrest judgment without looking to the facts, so without a fair trial, without innocent until proven guilty, any of that. Um, what I heard him saying was, regardless of the facts, you know, like like this is an invitation to mourn with those who mourn, to lament, to enter in, and not use. I think what often happens at times is we can use wait for the facts as a um, almost an excuse or an out to detach emotionally from the significance of the situation. And by the time everything comes in months later or whatever, it's like we're already 
gone on to the next thing. We never actually engage on a heart level. And so some of the narrative that I saw nationally to take Ahmaud Arbery as an example, since that's what Tyler was talking about in the video. If you're talking about legally, judicially, I, I think there's the legitimate question. I mean, some were raising the question like, okay, was this motivated by racism? Now, personally, my two senses, it seems pretty obvious. Like I have a hard time believing if the, that if Ahmad had been a white dude jogging down the street that they would have picked up their guns and gotten in the truck. But let's just say, even if that's 98% sure, let's say other 1%, 2%, there is another potential narrative that people are pointing to of like, okay, they're vigilante justice type thing. You know, they care about there's some break-ins, there's whatever, we're going to get our things, we're going to take care of um, uh, someone that we think has been breaking in or whatever. Um, even if that's the case, I think the reality is the event itself seems to me like iconic of a greater reality in our country that like, um, like at the end of the day, it was murder, whether it was motivated by racism or false vigilante, whatever kind of stuff like, um, according to the Westminster Confession, which is a reformed church we'd hold to, like, dude, it violates all of the things for taking the life of an image bearer, according to our own kind of statement of faith. So you've got like, it's murder, it's all that. And you, and I'm not, I don't claim to be Superman. I don't have x-ray vision to see into their hearts in terms of what was fully driving or motivating them. But the reality is uh, racism exists in our country and it, it leads to situations like this. And so the situation itself, for me, it's, it's like iconic. It's like a window into a greater reality that things like this happen. And, and often we don't have the video, right? Like the video is not there to expose it. And it's so scary to me, just like, dude, if there hadn't been the video, this never would have seen the light of day. And how many situations like this don't have the video. And so even if I can't see into the hearts of them and I'm not the court or the justice system to uh, bring a, a, assign a motive and whether it's first degree murder or second degree murder and sort of the nature of their intent, like there is still the reality that this is an iconic window into um, events like this that still happen in our country that are motivated by race, even if by some slim chance this one happened to not be. And so I think like, so what I hear Tyler saying in, in that is, um, not that the facts don't matter from a judicial legal side of things, but that we don't need to use the facts as an excuse to check out our heart from grieving about the realities that instances like this show and reveal about our current state as a society. So if I hear what you're saying, Josh, um, Emma and Warren, in some ways, the, the, what really, the facts that matter the most are the big picture facts of our history and what has happened time and time and time again. And uh, that this isn't one instant isolated case where you're playing Columbo and trying to figure out, you know, what, what happened here. But the, but the facts are that there have been many of these instances, way more that have been not been caught on camera, that have been talked about, um, you know, uh, and, and, and experienced by people, but uh, there, it hasn't been caught on camera. And so the, the broader facts of the larger history have to go into, every, into these situations when you see things like that. Yeah, just add like, um, you know, we talked about this a lot. It's like, I think people really need to be honest about their emotions. Like if you see a video of someone being shot and killed and 
on the way, especially when, you know, in, in regards to the amount of Arbery. And your first question is to like, well, did he deserve to die? You know, I, I just think there's deeper questions you have to ask yourself of like, why is that the first thing you're thinking of rather than like, you know, this is a terrible thing that an image bearer was actually killed in front of our eyes in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's land with one question, we're, one more question. We're gonna get to some of the others uh, at part two. And I wanna get, all right, I'm gonna ask this question. I've heard it uttered many times before. Um, all right, some version of this. Sometimes I feel paralyzed. I care about these issues. But on one hand, I hear people saying, stop talking, if, especially if you're from the dominant culture, and just listen, lament. Like, you don't have to dominate every situation, why don't you just listen? And then on the other hand, you hear people saying, we need white people to speak up and speak out against these things. And so it feels like whether I'm, whether I'm silent and a listener, or if I speak out, I'm somehow doing something wrong. So I'm just gonna be paralyzed and try to avoid the conversation. What do you do with that? I wanna say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna say yes, because I don't think you could have, you need both of those. You do, you need both of those for this complete picture. Cause when people are like, shut up and listen and learn it's it's a call to like hey can you please diversify your podcast listening library and can you please shut up and go learn shut up sounds really mean I don't mean it mean I'm just saying like in the heart of the spirit of the question like shut up um, but just like hey can you take can you take a back seat for a second go create like a podcast listening library and learn and like be quiet and learn from some people who share some uncomfortable perspectives that you, before you would have been like this this is this goes against everything all the things i've always believed but like uh, like listen to some other things learn from people of some different cultures like some people who are leading out in this space like learn from the african-american church who literally their entire history is of like salvation in jesus and also social action like social action that those two things have always been paired in the african-american church right like learn from some different spaces that i have not been formed and shaped by so i think that's where that part of like hey be quiet and listen and be like hey like put yourself under the leadership of someone else and learn but then there's also this outcry of maybe what I would call like intra, intra racial advocacy, like intra meaning within your own people group, within your own race. Cause I hate for this, this is the reality, even though I hate it, but like um, Warren speaking something to a white person is just received differently than Jim, if you were to do it, right? Especially when it comes to like really hard things of challenge. Um, I hate that that's true, but it is. And so like, I think there's this outcry for like, um, white people like, please like use your voice and the, um, use your voice to, to speak out against it in your sphere of influence, right? So I'm like, if you're 
uh, if you're a parent, if you're a stay at home parent and like your sphere of influence, maybe it's just your kids. Like, mm. all right, how are you talking to your kids about Ahmaud Arbery? How are you talking to your kids about racism? Like through a lens of the biblical story now as a four, five, six, seven year old, whatever. Like, I think like use your voice to outcry, like to challenge these spaces that it's, it's going to feel different for a Warren to do it than for you to do it as like a fellow, as a fellow white person. So I think like when I say yes, I'm like, yeah, we, we need two sides of that coin. We need both of them. And so, um, I, I, I hate that people, I know that people feel paralyzed by that, but I'm like, really, like, really, I would say like, we're just asking you to do both. We're asking ourselves to do both, to hold both of these things, like submit yourself to some other, like be a learner and a listener. Um, and then also like be, be an advocate within, within your own people group and in the spaces of, of influence that you have um, to, to hold both of these tensions and do both if that makes sense. Yeah, so if I hear what you're saying, you're saying both are called for and you've got to figure out the right situation mm -hmm. for each of those. And that's really where uh, we need wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would just add to like, you know, piggybacking on Emma, it's like, um, you know, a lot of times I think the the hard thing about these conversations is that they seem to sometimes only arise when we see another situation like this rise, like a, or a situation like this happen. And then it feels very reactionary. And, you know, in that moment, like, you know, black and brown people are grieving and they're like being asked questions in the midst of it. And like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love the questions. I love people like just wanting to learn, but like we can do that. I think that can be done proactively on a day by day basis because in the different spheres that we occupy, um, you know, there it probably is something within that structure that is broken, that has uh, been affected by racism, especially in a lot of businesses and um, yeah, things like that. So, like progressively, we we can have the eyes to look and like learn to like hear our neighbors day by day. You know, learn from our neighbors day by day in our different spheres, asking good questions, like loving. Um, and, um, you know, engaging in conversations that are not only surrounding, like, these deaths that we see happen. Well, I think we're going to let that be the last word for today. We'll do part two here soon. We're also going to do a podcast here soon with uh, Jake talking us through uh, the book of Revelation and how that can help shape this time that we're in. Um, so look for those next week. So we'll do, basically, we're going to do a live stream and, uh, and then we're going to take the audio of this and throw it on the podcast. But if you're a part of the live stream, you can go ahead and throw us questions as we're talking uh, in the future. So uh, Josh, uh, because we're church leaders and pastors and we don't know how to end things um, and we also need Jesus, would you... Uh, Pray for us, pray for our church, pray for those who are listening. And then yes, definitely. Yeah. Jesus, thank you that you have died, not just so we could uh, enter an affinity group, God, or we hang out with people who just think like us, uh, look like us, whatever else, God, you've died to reconcile humanity, God, and all of our glorious diversity, God, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. I thank you that you have planted uh, your churches as those colonies of the kingdom. God, learning to live life together across 
uh, uh, boundaries of uh, race, of class, of gender, of uh, all these different areas that can tend to pull our, our world apart, that you're out to bring us back together and not just in a superficial way, but in a way that can actually um, name our histories and, and commit to one another and press forward together uh, in your love, God. And so I want to pray particularly for our congregation right now, for our church, God, Redemption Tempe, and just redemption as a whole, God, um, as well as just for the church, uh, churches in America as a whole, God, I, I pray that your heart would become ours uh, in, in these areas, Lord, that we would um, be learners with the humility to, to ask good questions and listen and learn and grow. And that you would give us a proper boldness as well, God, to uh, speak when appropriate and, and God, to know how to live into these things um, in our life together as a people and in our society. God, I pray for our country right now as well, God. Uh, just in a world marked by uh, division and fragmentation and cycles of violence, God, uh, I pray that you would give um, leaders wisdom, Lord, that you would establish your justice in the earth God, through any variety of means available. God, we look to you as the righteous, the king of all the earth and ask for your righteousness, your justice to be established, Lord, that your justice would flow uh, like the mighty river, God throughout uh, our churches and in our society as well. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, friends. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. During this season when we are not meeting due to COVID-19, you can find more information on how to watch our online services and how to get connected to our online small groups by going to tempe.redemptionaz.com. We would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast to our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week.